afternoon from the KALX studios in Berkeley, California. I'm Franklin, and this is the Brook Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, pythons and wingmen. In addition, Professor Martin Paul will join us to discuss unexplained illnesses. We'll also find out why we need iodine. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the world-famous question of the week. Coming right up here on the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee, the voice of the summer months. So what's your favorite animal during the summer months? <laughs> oh my goodness, it's been so long. I didn't even realize we still had it. It's the animal fact of the week, isn't yes, it? Yes, oh, the animal my. fact of the week. Wow. I've missed the animal fact of the week. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> well, what's today's animal fact? I've laid up awake at night wondering whatever happened to the animal fact. It terrorizes my dreams. So dolphins float into your dreams? <laughs> Do you... Yeah, dolphins, they start eating the sheep. Barbecue somewhere along the way, which is a happy ending, of course. Yes. Predator today is actually the Burmese python. The Burmese python? Yes. Scientists have wondered how they eat because it's quite sporadic. So they could eat like an entire pig, I mean literally pig out, mm-hmm. and then not eat anything for a month or two. Wow. I tried to do that once. It didn't work so well. But basically what they think and what allows them to live off of this dieting regimen is that their body can respond, change morphologically, dramatically after they eat. For example, after they eat something, their body temperature goes up, cell repl- replication rate goes up. So basically they burn it off. Right. So they digest everything in the bones. Hmm. So except for, uh, I guess, the hair and some skin, everything is digested. Wow, that's the best part. <laughs> so I guess the uh, exciting part about this whole discovery is a new cell that they found in the small intestines, which is responsible for degradation of the bone. What they found was that within hours of feeding, they actually found bone particles broken up from their meal. So the, the digestion breaks it down almost immediately. Hmm. This allows them to optimize their intake of calcium. What every growing animal needs. Yeah. So next time I'm going to eat everything, even the bone from a steak. So this was carried out by Dr. Jean-Herve Lignot of Strasbourg, and it was published in the Society for Experimental Biology. Well, I guess we can make today's show uh, the return of the Animal Fact of the Week because I have another one for you. A real animal? <laughs> Do you consider birds your favorite animal? They aren't plants, but they're pretty intelligent, too. That is true, and which cannot be said for all humans, either. Uh, Especially the electable ones. <laughs> there's a negative correlation between intelligence and electability, I think. <laughs> Certain types of birds, called mannequins, which is a bird found in South America, have a very unique courtship behavior Okay. in which two birds will actually cooperate to put on a very interesting dance display for the female. Uh-huh. And the female will then mate with the alpha male. Okay, so which one's which? Well, so there's a dominant male and there's a beta male. The question is, why does the beta male help the alpha male, even uh-huh. though he doesn't get the girl? And this has been a question for quite some time, ever since Charles Darwin at first observed the behavior. Right. There's three possible ways that you could think about it. First, the beta male could be a close relative. Mm-hmm. So by helping the alpha male, it helps its own genes okay. get in. The beta male might be increasing its own chances, reproducing sometime down the line. Mm-hmm. It's also possible that its immediate reproductive chances could increase. So it really literally has a wingman, huh? Exactly. 
Emily Duvall from the Max Planck Institute for Ornithology in Seeweiss in Germany has looked at this, and what she finds is that the explanation probably has to do with the birds increasing their reproductive success in the future. Mm-hmm. She actually observed the males, and what she did is she took, during one generation, an alpha and beta male, but removed all the alpha males, but the beta males didn't uh, have any particular advantage over the rest of the males, suggesting that perhaps by participating in the courtship dance, these beta males, it's like later on, go on to become an alpha male. And And the explanation she posits is that they learn aspects of the dance while sort of, I guess, understudying for the alpha male so that during the next mating season, they can become the alpha male. That almost sounds feudalistic. (laughs) Wait your time and you'll get your chance. I've been waiting, man. I think you need an apprentice some more. Or or... find better masters. Anyway, this is very fascinating results and it was published in a recent edition of The American Naturalist. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. This is the Berkeley Grox Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, Professor Martin Paul will join us to discuss unexplained illnesses. So stay tuned. It's not easy having yourself a good time. Science Show. Well, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity, fibromyalgia, and post-traumatic stress disorder may seem like highly unrelated diseases, besides, of course, their seeming unknown etiology. But is it possible that a common biochemical mechanism may underlie all of these diseases? Well, joins us today to explain these unexplained illnesses is Professor Martin Paul. Uh, Professor Paul is Professor of Biochemistry and Basic Medical Sciences at Washington State University. He is the author of numerous research articles and his new book, Explaining Unexplained Illnesses, Disease Paradigm for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, Multiple Chemical Sensitivity, Fibromyalgia, Golf Wear Syndrome, and others, attempts to explain the cause for some of these diseases. Professor Paul, thank you very much for joining us on the Grok Science Show. That's my pleasure. But this is certainly, I think, a very fascinating book, Explaining Unexplained Illnesses. You talk about a number of diseases, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity, but I'm, I'm curious, uh, how do various stressors and exposure to chemicals start these various illnesses? There are a lot of different stressors that are involved, so let's talk about the diversity of them because I think that's one of the interesting things about this. In chronic fatigue syndrome, you often have infections, both viral and bacterial infections, and even protozoan infections that may be involved, as well as a number of other stressors. Multiple chemical sensitivity, as as you pointed out, is most commonly initiated by exposure to either organic solvents or any of uh, at least three classes of pesticides. Fibromyalgia often has infection, but often also things like physical trauma. Psychological stress can be involved in all of those, as well as in post-traumatic stress disorder. In fact, there are at least a dozen, probably 13 different stressors that are documented to be involved in the initiation. So the question is, how can these stressors that are so diverse act to produce chronic illness? And the answer that I proposed is that all of these stressors can act to increase the levels of a compound known as nitric oxide in the body. And so they can have a common biochemical response, even though they're so diverse. 
I see. And how do all these different stressors then activate this nitric oxide peroxynitrite pathway that you, you talk about? Okay, so what I proposed was that all these stressors act initially to, to increase nitric oxide, and there's another compound called superoxides that may also be involved. And the two of those can react with each other to form a compound known as peroxynitrite, which is a potent oxidant. And peroxynitrite, I argue, can initiate a uh, complex biochemical vicious cycle. And once the cycle gets started, it basically propagates itself over time, and it is the cause of illness. So you have the initial cause that triggers the cycle, and then the cycle is what causes the illness. I see, I see. What is it about the uh, peroxynitrite, then, that leads to very deleterious effects? Well, there, there are actually a lot of different things that peroxynitrite can do, either directly or indirectly. So you know, let me give you an example. Uh, one of them, peroxynitrite can activate transcription factor. This is a protein that turns on certain genes, which is called NF-kappa-B. And NF-kappa-B, in turn, can both directly and indirectly turn on a gene called the inducible nitric oxide synthase gene. And the protein then that's produced will produce more nitric oxide. So you can kind of see right there, you've got a potential vicious cycle there. You get more nitric oxide, peroxynitrite, NF-kappa-B acting both directly and indirectly to induce this gene, which is usually called INOS. And then you get more nitric oxide and then more peroxynitrite. You know, there's a cycle, but there, there are a number of other cycles that I think are also involved. Some of them involve superoxide particularly. Some of them involve uh, two receptors that are found mainly in neurons. One of them is called the vanillaid receptor, and the other one's called the NMDA receptor. Those can get activated, and they, in turn, when they get activated, you get increases in nitric oxide. So there are theories of these kind of interconnected cycles that make up the overall cycle. So the idea basically is that once this cycle gets going, it's so complex and it's so robust, it's hard to stop it. And what we need to do in order to treat these illnesses effectively is to lower that cycle as best we can. Because it's so complex, there's not really a so-called magic bullet to target. You have to sort of attack maybe multiple parts of this pathway when you're treating these diseases. Right. So in the book, I have a very long chapter on therapy. In fact, it's by far the longest chapter in the book. And what I talk about are that there are actually quite a number of, of agents. And, of course, in, in medicine, an agent is anything that does anything in the body. Most of these agents are nutritional supplements, although some of them are conventional pharmaceuticals. And so there are, there are a large number of agents that can downregulate different aspects of the cycle. And let me say that we call the cycle the no-ono cycle based on the structure of nitric oxide, NO, and the structure of peroxynitrite, O-N-O-O-. But pronounced no, oh no, because that's the way the people who suffer feel. And so basically what we want to do is to downregulate the no, no cycle biochemistry, and that's the basic approach that, that needs to be used to treat these illnesses. So have approaches then actually been implemented in treating some of the diseases that you mentioned? Uh, yes, they have. And, and, what's, and they, they've been implemented at two different levels. One is that there are a number of individual agents that have been tested, particularly with chronic fatigue syndrome and fibromyalgia, but also to some extent with multiple chemical sensitivity. Do they help with these patients? And there are 13 of them now that have been tested in clinical trials that seem to help individually. And then there are a number of others where there are clinical observations or anecdotal reports, which are, of course, a weaker form of evidence that they also seem to be helpful. But generally what you find is these individual agents only give a, a, a modest response. 
they don't give a, a dramatic response. And so the question is, well, what do you do next? And, and a number of physicians, and I talk about five of them in my book, have developed complex treatment protocols to treat these illnesses. And each of these protocols involves the use of at least 14 different agents or classes of agents that are predicted to downregulate the nonocycle biochemistry. And what seems to be the case is these complex uh, treatment protocols are, are, are much more effective than the individual agents. So one of the features, uh, of course, of this uh, no-ono cycle is that it's highly local. Does that necessitate then that the drug delivery also needs to be local? Yeah, and, and the local nature is very important because what happens then is that depending on which tissues are impacted by it in a particular patient, you'll get a certain set of symptoms and signs generated. And in a different patient with different tissues impacted, you'll get a different set. So you see a tremendous amount of variation in the symptoms and signs of illness within this group of illnesses, going from one patient to another to a third and so forth. And that can then easily be explained. But basically, you have to make sure that you get the agents to the sites that are involved. And a lot of these sites are in the brain. And so you want to use agents, preferably, that can get through the blood-brain barrier so they can get access to the brain. You talk about five different principles of this no-ono cycle in terms of explaining the model of these chronic diseases. I'm wondering if you could maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so the five principles. So the first principle is that these are initiated by stressors that can either act to increase nitric oxide or possibly other cycle elements. So that's the first principle. The second one is that the chronic phase of illness is caused by the cycle and therefore that the elements of the cycle, and we've talked about some of them, but not all of them, will be elevated in the chronic phase of illness. And so that's obviously testable. The third principle is that the symptoms and signs of illness must be produced by one or more elements of the cycle. That is, the cycle must be causal and therefore must be producing the symptoms. And that's testable as well. The fourth principle is the local nature of it, which you referred to a couple of minutes ago. And and let me just explain why it's local, because it's, it, it, it's an important concept. The compounds that are involved in the cycle, the nitric oxide, superoxide, peroxynitrite, have relatively short half-lives in, in biological tissue, so they don't last very long from the time they're made till the time they're destroyed. What that means, they don't go very far. And the mechanisms that maintain the cycle all act at the level of individual cells. So what that means is that you can have a tissue that's impacted by the no-no cycle where these elements will be elevated, and then you can have an adjacent tissue which may be largely unimpacted by it. So basically we're talking about a local mechanism, and that's terribly important in terms of the kinds of properties that you expect to have. And in fact, I think is strongly supported by a lot of evidence with regard to these illnesses. So the fifth principle is one that I think we've already talked about in, in essence, and that is that the way to treat these illnesses is to downregulate the no-no cycle biochemistry. In other words, we should treat the cause, not the symptoms. The third principle, of course, is the fact that disease should activate this no-ono cycle. Is it possible then to maybe implicate other diseases which previously hadn't been thought of uh, in this way as also activating this pathway? Yes. In fact, I stuck my neck out very far on this book because after developing this mechanism, what I think should be the obvious question, and that is what, whenever you have a proposed new paradigm in science, uh, you always ask, what else fits? Are there other things that fall within this paradigm? 
And so in this case, the obvious question is, are there other diseases or illnesses that may be caused by the no-no cycle? And in the book, I propose 14 as good candidates for inclusion under the cycle. Some of these are very well-recognized, important diseases that are still of uncertain causality. In medicine, it's called etiology. And those include, for instance, tinnitus, which I argue can be caused by the no-no cycle impact on the cochlea in the inner ear. And in fact, I've got a paper that I've submitted on that recently. I argue that multiple sclerosis may be a no-no cycle disease. And MS, as you may know, you know, some people have argued is, is an autoimmune disease and other people have argued, well, it's not primarily an autoimmune disease. So it's still questionable as to what causes it. And I argue that the three classic neurodegenerative diseases, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, and, and amyotrophic lateral sclerosis, or ALS, can be caused by the no-no cycle. And I also argue that autism can be caused by the no-no cycle. And the others that we just talked about all involve the potential impact of the cycle on different parts of the body, so different tissues. Autism, I think the main thing that's different about it is when it starts, you know, that it starts around the age of birth rather than much later and may be similar actually to the chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, multiple chemical sensitivity group of illnesses, but may be different because of when it starts. That's obviously a, a huge leap. And I have to say that the case that I make in the book is frankly a relatively superficial one, but the case that can be made even with a superficial consideration is surprisingly strong. Uh, I'm curious then, how have various other members of the scientific and medical community uh, taken this idea up in terms of their view of the etiology of these type of diseases? It's a little bit early to say, but I gave five talks in Europe in May. I gave two talks in London, one at the ME-CFS meeting, so uh, chronic fatigue syndrome is often called ME in, in England. And a second one, I gave a four-hour talk at the Royal Society of Medicine in London, which is one of the most prestigious locations in the world. And that was approved for medical education credit. And then I gave a talk in Barcelona, and I gave two talks at a environmental medicine meeting in Madrid. And the response has just been really incredible, especially when you think about how conservative science is and how conservative medicine is. It's really been quite stunning. So I've been absolutely delighted with the response that I've gotten, but still pretty early in the process. For people who perhaps have some of these diseases, chronic fatigue syndrome, multiple chemical sensitivity disorder, if they're interested in ways of treating this, where can they uh, go? What can they look at? I, I guess I'm not completely sure what I can talk about on this program. Could I talk about something I have partial commercial relationship with? Uh, well, as long as you say it, you have a vested interest in it, I suppose. Yeah, okay, yeah. fine. You know, what I suggest people do, first of all, is to look at the chapter in my book on therapy because... There's a lot of information in there. I mean, it's a, it's a huge, long chapter. And, and, and many of the people who've suffered from these illnesses, particularly the ones who were well-educated, have spent a lot of time educating themselves about these illnesses. And they have, in many cases, learned much, much more about than the physicians that they have to you know, deal with in a lot of cases. So, you know, I think they'll get a lot of information from that about what things may be helpful. Now, I, I worked with the Allergy Research Group and the head of that company, Stephen Levine, who's a uh, PhD, who's actually very knowledgeable about this area of research. And we have put together a series of nutritional supplements through his company, which are now available over the counter. 
so anybody can access those. And so you might want to check the Allergy Research Group site. Now, as I, as I indicated before, I do have a vested interest here, so I have a conflict of interest, and people need to know about that. Well, I guess we are running slightly out of time, but I'm just curious if maybe you have any last words regarding this new model of disease and advice, again, for people who maybe are suffering from some of these diseases. I think that we are at a point where we know pretty well how to treat these diseases and get a good clinical response. And the treatment involves not only the use of these agents that I talk about, but also avoiding stressors that would otherwise upregulate the melanocycle biochemistry. And those, those are discussed in the book. I don't think we're at a point yet where we can get, or we know how to get, a consistent cures with these illnesses. I do think that needs to be our goal. Our goal needs to be to cure people, not just to treat them. I don't think we're there yet. It's my hope that we'll get there, you know, fairly quickly, but maybe I'm wrong about that. What do you think needs to be done then to reach that point? Well, I think what we need to do is to use our knowledge of the cycle. I think we need to use the expertise of, of numerous people. That is, it shouldn't just be me who's working on this, but many other people. And I think we need to do a lot of clinical studies to see which things will produce uh, further substantial improvement over where we are now. So there's a lot of clinical studies, I think, that need to be done. Now, I'm a PhD, not an MD, so I can't do them directly, but I can work with physicians and other medical people to do some of these studies, and it's my hope to do that. And do you think the prospects are good then seeing some of these diseases cured in, in the near future then? Well, I, I think so. But as I say, I could be wrong. You can't, you can't, you don't know until you try. But, <laughs> uh, but yes, I think that needs to be our goal. And I think it, it should be a realistic goal. Well, I think it, it's certainly a very laudable goal. And uh, Professor Paul, I do want to thank you again for uh, joining us today to talk about uh, your new book, Explaining Unexplained Diseases, Disease Paradigm for Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, Multiple Chemical Sensitivity, Fibromyalgia, Post-Traumatic Stress Disorder, Gulf Syndrome, and, of course, a host of others. <laughs> again, thank you very much. That's my pleasure, and thank you. Bye-bye. And you were just listening to Professor Martin Paul discussing unexplained illnesses. This is the Berkeley Grocks Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes... It's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Rock's Science Show. Well, Forrest joins us now with the answer to last week's question of the week. Forrest? And now Forrest with the answer to last week's question of the week. Why do we need iodine? 
when we need iodine to prevent goiter. That's the thing that makes my thyroid so big, and that's why we take iodine. Yeah, hello, this is Dr. Dr. Professor Einstein with this week's question of the week. You know, the very fascinating thing I do is I'm trying to balance all the things that I love to buy. I love uh, strudels, I love uh, Volkswagens, and I love uh, my cousin. So the very interesting thing is which ones do I pick? Well, maybe the Pareto Equilibrium can help out. If you know the answer of what this is, you can email us at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you just might find a little balance in life. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music.